been a week of, of many horrors, hasn't it? And I suppose we've all been shocked by the, uh, the events of an American journalist beheaded by a, apparently a British Muslim, part of the Islamic State terror group. And I think it's finally got the attention of Western leaders, hasn't it? When the Islamic State, formerly known as ISIS, took over Mosul in Iraq, Christians were told to convert to Islam or pay a tax of subjugation or die. Uh, Christian homes in Mosul were marked by Islamic militants with the Arabic letter N, which stands for Nizrani, meaning Nazarene, i.e. a Christian. And uh, they declared those properties so marked now belong to the militants, and it was time for those within them to get out. So hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced, and there are horrific stories of abuse and brutality. Now, if you're a Christian in that context, how should you respond? How should we respond as we observe such things on our TV and read our newspapers? What can Christians sing or pray when such things are taking place? Well, I I think there's lots of places we can go in God's Word, but Psalm 10 is one of those places. I I want you to notice from the outset that the Holy Spirit has uh, inspired this Word of God. This is a unique place in Scripture where we have God's inspired words given to His people that they may speak them back to God. And God, in His kindness, has uh, given us words like these that we can express in situations like this. Look at the very first verse it's honesty. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? In times of trouble. It's a real prayer, isn't it? Uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 1 is this. God, are you avoiding me? Where are you when I need you? He writes. And I wonder whether you've ever had the, the, the cause to ask such a question, to think that. Now the reason that the psalmist is thinking that is because he looks out and sees all the the fraud and the extortion and the cruelty and the violence and the injustice in the world done by wicked men and it causes him to to ask these questions Lord why do you allow this why are you standing away from this when we're in trouble why are you doing nothing and if you've wrestled with those thoughts then this is a psalm to give expression to our pain to our trouble and to strengthen us to hold fast. I, I hope you notice as we read it, there's a movement, isn't there? From, from a, a psalmist who just can't understand what is going on to some confident statements of faith in who God is. And that's the beauty of this psalm. It takes us on a journey. And uh, such is our human experience that you know, we keep well, having moments in our lives where we We forget truths and we look at things and we think, oh, how on earth could this be happening? And we need to be reminding ourselves again and again of this truth to to lead us from fear to to faith. And this is the psalm. Now, there's a couple of parts of this psalm. You could break it down into smaller units, but there's two main parts. In verses 1 to 11, there is the pride and the tyranny of the wicked that is examined. And in verses 12 to 18, the prayer 
and trust of the afflicted. So the pride and tyranny of the wicked, the first half and the second half, the prayer and the trust of the afflicted. So let's think about the pride and the tyranny of the wicked. He paints these... um, Powerful word pictures of the schemes and strategies of the wicked. And he actually gets us inside the head of the wicked. Did you notice that? Several times we enter into the thoughts of the wicked. We see his motivations for his behavior. And the fascinating thing is that his behavior, his wickedness, is driven by his theology. Did you notice that? What you believe about God makes all the difference in the world to how you're actually going to behave. And he believes certain things about God and that enables him to behave the way that he behaves. uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce entitles uh, his sermon uh, on Psalm 10, Practical Atheism, which is a great summary of this man's fundamental convictions. Look at verse 4. In all his thoughts... There is no room for God. That is his atheism. Uh, It's not sort of a true atheism, but it's more of a practical atheism. Take a look at verse 11. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face. He never sees. That is practical atheism. This is what he believes about God. God does not care about what is going on. And so, he is able to do the things that he does. But there is a certain uneasiness as he keeps talking about God. I think there's a certain wistfulness. God has forgotten. But I think there's a slight anxiety in that. Has he? Let's take a close look at this... uh, This practical atheist. Well, first of all, he's marked by pride and arrogance. Verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. In his pride, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Now, notice with me that when you're a practical atheist, what you worship is not God, but you worship your own desires. Look at that sandwiched in between those two verses. Look at verse 3. What does he boast about? The cravings of his heart. When we stop worshiping God, this is what happens. We start worshiping our own desires. We start boasting about our desires. We make them what we're about. And as he boasts of the cravings of his heart and what he wants to get up to, um, he uh, blesses those who are like him in their greed and he reviles the Lord. That's what happens when we turn from God. We just want to gratify twisted desires. Another mark is actually quite surprising. It's his prosperity and security. Verse 5, his ways are always prosperous. Now, I think this can be a surprise to a young believer who might think that God would actually strike down someone who curses him. We had a guy who used to teach in our high school and he used to do this thing every year. He was proud of his atheism and he would prove that there was no God because he would stand in the assembly and say, if there is a God, strike me down, he would say. Ah, I'm still here, he says. That was his great thing he used to do every year. Well, why didn't God strike him down? Uh, Why do wicked people actually 
uh, prosper and look secure. The truth is, for a season, they can. For a season, God allows them to crush the helpless, to take their goods, to, to prosper themselves. And, uh, but we should notice that uh, God's apparent um, allowing them of, of their material success is not God's acceptance of their actions. You can picture the money lender who charges outrageous interest or the drug dealer who is making his profits from enslaving people or the company boss who raids the pension funds of his workers to boost the values of his own shares. Uh, this person believes in themselves and they're doing very nicely, thank you very much. And he's very proudly convinced of his own security. At the end of verse 5 it says he sneers at his enemies. In verse 6 he says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. Things seem to go the way of the wicked, which just increases their arrogance. They can't be touched. But the scary truth about pride is that it produces lots of other sins. And this psalm just shows the link between pride and tyranny. Look back at verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man, what does he do? He hunts down the weak. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, says this. Every proud thought is twin brother to a cruel thought. He who exalts himself will despise others and one step further will make him a tyrant. Now, I think it's a huge warning to us about the problem of pride. We need to constantly watch our own hearts, self-scrutiny, and, and, and be careful to, to root out pride of our, out of our hearts because if we find in our hearts that we are despising others, then soon after we will be uh, considering terrible things. And what's his chief weapon? Did you notice it there in verse 7? It's his tongue. Now, I used to practice dentistry. I did it for over 10 years. I saw some pretty ugly mouths. They would gross you out if I described some of them to you. But verse 7 describes the worst sort of mouth. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. And when you do a dental exam, you get them to lift their tongue up to see what's under their tongue. What's under his tongue? It's, it's worse. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. If you try to oppose wicked men, then don't be surprised if they come back at you with intimidating messages and threats. That's the way they work. And if violent speech doesn't work, the wicked man turns to violent actions, verses 8 to 11. He is likened to an assassin. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching the secret for his victims. And in verse 9, he's like a lion or a hunter. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. And he does all of this for what reason? He does it because of his theology. He's convinced that God does not care about his actions. Verse 11, God has forgotten. He covers his face. He never sees. Well, there's a description of the wicked man and his practical atheism. That's the first part of this psalm. Uh, in a sense, is, is seeing this. The psalmist just cries out to God, Why do you allow it? Why do you allow them to prosper? Why do you allow this to continue, God? Why do you stand far off? 
But why does God wait? That's a pretty big question, isn't it? Why does God wait? Why does he allow the things that have been taking place in Iraq, to name but one place of many where wicked things have happened this past week? Well, before we move on to the next few verses, we should ask this question, who is the wicked person? Who is the wicked person? And actually, a sober assessment as we read through these verses to see that perhaps, not in the full-blooded way, but perhaps in a far paler way, we can actually see a little picture of ourselves. How many times have we used words as weapons? to curse, to deceive, to oppress, to cause mischief and sin. Uh, It was interesting, I listened to uh, Malcolm Mackay being interviewed as he gave his apology for his text messages this last week as a football manager. And he gave a pretty heartfelt apology. I think he's really sad. I think he's missed out on the Crystal Palace job or some job or somewhere anyway. But but he does say this. He said, now I want people to think if, if... If people had access to your text messages and all your tweets, what would the public think about that? That's a fair point, isn't it? Actually, if people listened in to some of the words we've used, even to the people that we supposedly love, that's worse, isn't it? It's more culpable. Not the stranger, but to the, 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 the people who love us and that we love, the words that we can use to harm them. Actually, in a pale form, we see that the wicked is, it's me. It's us. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul gives a description, an anatomy of an evil person, and he quotes this very psalm. Here's his damning assessment of our human condition. There is no one righteous. No, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God, all have turned away. And then he goes to a list of the different characteristics and he gets down to this very verse from Psalm 10. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. As we bemoan the tragic things that happen in the world, the suffering that happens because of what wicked people do, as we think honestly about that, we'll have to get at some stage quite personal and realize that We're implicated. We're wicked. To see or to not see that the problem is in part us, is to be part of the problem. And to use the language of Romans chapter 3, the whole world will be held accountable to God and we'll all have to give an account for our sin and our wickedness. But Paul goes on in Romans, there's a way to to deal with this sin problem. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. We are all condemned, we fall short of the glory of God and yet we can actually all experience uh, being made right with God freely. We don't have to earn it, we don't have to... uh, make ourselves uh, special to achieve this. It is achieved through the grace uh, of the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. It's by trusting Christ that he turns wicked people into people who are declared right, righteous people, by receiving Jesus as a gift. 
And one part of the answer to this complex question, why does God delay his judgment, is this. We're all wicked. If God has to come in, if God says, okay, at 12 o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to deal with all wickedness. It'll all be removed. The question is, where will we be at 12 o'clock? Where will our family members be who don't know Christ? Where will our neighbors be? Why does God delay the judgment? Why does he stand apparently far off and do nothing? Because he is patiently waiting for people to repent. He's giving an opportunity for people to respond, to move from wickedness to righteousness. That's in part the answer why he delays. It's a complex question, but that is an important thing that we have to consider. But full disclosure is this, is that having put off trust in Christ and received the approval of God, we also at the same time make ourselves a target for those who oppose the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the people, as the Christians in, in Iraq have discovered, as the N is painted at their door. To be a friend of God through faith in Christ makes you an enemy to many in the world. Now the psalmist has described what the wicked thinks about God. But as he does that, he turns in verse 12, doesn't he? It's a turning point in the psalm. And he begins to remind himself what is true about God. He's thought about what the wicked thinks about God. But here he turns and says, well this is actually what's true about God. He knows the character of God. And that's why he's bold to cry out to God to act. And so from verses 12 to 18, we have the prayer and the trust of the afflicted. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? It's worth noting that uh, this isn't a psalm with any easy answers to unjust suffering. By the end of this psalm, which was probably a continuation of verse Psalm 9, so this is a psalm of David, by the end of this psalm, um, the person's still suffering. The questions of verse 1 and verse uh, um, 13 are still unanswered as he calls on God to arise. But something very significant does change, and it's his realization there in verse 14. But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. Do you see how that's in sharp contrast to what the practical atheist says in verse 11? Verse 11, the practical atheist says, God has forgotten, he covers his face and never sees. But of course, the psalmist who knows the character of God knows that that's absolutely absurd. But you, O God, verse 14, do see trouble and grief. You consider it. To take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. And you are the helper of the fatherless. Derek Kidner in his commentary says this. He can continue to face the trouble because he doesn't face it alone. He remembers that God is there with him. When he starts praying it feels like God is hiding from him. But he knows that no, God sees everything. But you, oh God, you do see 
You see the trouble. You see the grief. You see, God is not inactive when the wicked uh, oppress the afflicted. He's actually taking full and accurate record that uh, will be fully disclosed on the day of judgment. God sees every single action and notes it. God has got a perfect memory. And God is going to do more than just take records. He says, you consider it to take it in hand. These are truths that we do well to recall as we observe the unjust suffering in this world. God sees. God considers it. God will take it in hand. And so, verse 14, the victim commits himself to you. Literally, uh, in the original language, according to the commentaries, my Hebrew is rubbish, but the commentaries told me this, that word um, commit is the word abandons. Uh, the helpless believer abandons himself to total and personal trust in God, the righteous judge. Because God is the helper of the fatherless, the destitute, and the poor. And so he abandons himself to God. And if you are suffering unjustly today, here's something that might encourage you to endure. This was the experience of Christ David. This was the experience of Christ Jesus. Keep your finger in Psalm 10 and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you know, I love First Peter, so I, lo- I love every excuse to get to it. So, First uh, Peter chapter two, you'll find this on page one thousand two hundred and nineteen. I should start on the next page from verse nineteen. One Peter chapter two, for it is commendable. If a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. What did he do? Verse 23, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He abandons himself to the just judge. That's how we can persevere in suffering as we follow Christ. Entrust ourselves to the God who will judge justly. And knowing that's to be the case, in verses 15 to 18, um, knowing that God will uh, deal with all evil, uh, he sort of rejoices in it. He anticipates it. And he cries out, verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. I mean, if the wicked man keeps beating you, what are you hoping is going to happen? His arm's going to break. He'll stop beating you. And that's what he calls on God to do. Break their arm. Break their power. Break their strength. 
Call them to account for their wickedness. And this psalm that started with a feel of despair ends with defiant hope, doesn't it? Verse 16 to 18. The Lord is king. You know, it feels like it's out of control. It feels like God's far off. But actually he reminds himself, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. There is a kingdom coming where all wickedness will be removed. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of earth may terrify you no more. Now this is what we need in the middle of trouble. This is why this is such a beautiful psalm if we're feeling absolutely down in the depths. This is a psalm that turns us from staring at the wicked and being depressed by their actions to beginning to refocus our eyes on the glorious sovereign king who is bringing in an eternal everlasting kingdom where wickedness will be no more. He remembers the character of God and that sustains him through the dark times. The God who sees The God who considers, the God who will take it in hand, the God who hears, the God who encourages, the God who listens, and ultimately the God who will be the judge that will remove all wicked oppressors. And at the end, he looks at the wicked with new eyes, doesn't he? And he sees how puny they are. In order that man who is of the earth, may terrify no more. The wicked oppressor will one day become dust. The righteous that trust the gospel of the Lord Jesus will be raised from dust to eternal glory. That's what we need to see. This is the God that we can trust. Even when it's still messy, and not worked out. Well, let's close by considering this great God of glory that we fix our eyes on as we head out into this troubled world. Let's stand and sing.